Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Malcolm X from 1992 with my wonderful guest, Rukmini Kedesai. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today on the show, I have my wonderful friend, Rukmini K. Desai. Hello, Rookie. How are you? I am so excited. So this week, we watched the wonderful masterpiece of a film, Malcolm X, directed by Spike Lee. How did this viewing feel for you? It felt um, like a spiritual experience in the best way. I'm going to explain viewers at home why I chose this film. Um, Basically, this podcast episode, it's our season finale. um, And I wanted like a movie that was kind of epic and grand and a masterpiece. And that is what this is. It will also be coming out the week before Juneteenth. So this is kind of honoring and celebrating Juneteenth. And then on this show, we have never talked about Spike Lee before. Um, And I don't think we've talked about Denzel Washington either. So this was kind of a great opportunity to do all of that. Um, And so now I will give you a plot synopsis. Viewers at home, the film Malcolm X. I should just preface this. I'm not normally a biopic person because I think sometimes biopics can be really stale in the way they do storytelling. So what I think is amazing about this film is it's like a really fresh way of telling and showing a biopic, exploring somebody's life. Um, So it's the story of Malcolm X and how he came to be Malcolm X. It starts off showing him as a young man um, with flashbacks of his childhood. Um, Malcolm X's father was a preacher who was murdered um, by white men. Um, I believe, I don't know if they specifically say it was the Ku Klux Klan, but you are pretty sure it was the Ku Klux Klan. Um, And his mother, was I know this from like real life, she was put in a mental institution and apparently in real life, she did not actually belong in a mental institution. Um, so he he has like a really traumatic childhood, grows up in foster care. He ends up in Boston. He meets a friend, Shorty. Shorty shows him how to be kind of like cool for the time. He shows him how to straighten his hair and he shows him how to wear like flashy zoot suits and they play games like I'm Humphrey Bogart and I'm shooting you dead. Ah, so, you know, we see their kind of young, joyful, youthful days together. And then we get into, you know, a more serious plot where Malcolm X, when he is Malcolm Little, he ends up in New York. He ends up kind of falling in with a crowd doing illegal activities And um, that gets him sent to jail, basically. Uh, He's in jail for 10 years. During his time in jail, he converts to being a Muslim. And that really 
that really helps him and saves him personally. And um, he gets out and he wants to like preach to people about the Muslim faith and how it has helped him. And then also he wants to empower black people. And he does that. And um, when he is following, uh, there's like a certain sect of the faith where he follows someone named Elijah Muhammad. And um, when he's following that sect of the faith, he comes across as being more, um, I don't know the exact word, basically like he supports segregation in favor of like black people being empowered. So it's like he does not like white people because white people have done really, really terrible things to black people. And I feel like it's, I honestly feel like it's pretty justified. Um, So a lot of people find him controversial and they don't really support his ideas. And eventually he travels to Mecca and he becomes more of the mind that we're all one human being. I don't know how to put it like one human nation, but we're not a nation because it's international. We're all one spiritually. Um, And he comes back and starts to kind of preach more of those ideals still through a Muslim lens, but without Elijah Muhammad. And then he is assassinated um it's still i think we're never sure to this day if it's because of uh elijah muhammad's sect of the nation of islam so there are actually two men who were recently exonerated this is true and his family is now suing i believe the fbi the nypd and another institution in the death of um malcolm x So yes, as Ricky pointed out, three people went to jail for assassinating Malcolm X, and it's portrayed in this film as four people who are responsible for his death. Um, But it turns out really only one of them was actually responsible. And so it's tragic. Malcolm X is assassinated. uh, But then we get this beautiful, God, I guess it's like a montage of moments um, of Malcolm X and why he was important to the Black community and how like a lot of white people don't understand that. Um, but how his voice mattered so much and how he empowered so many people. And there's a cameo with Nelson Mandela that is so moving where he gives this um, speech that Malcolm X gave. And then it ends with Malcolm X finishing it himself in like real footage of Malcolm X. And then we get all of the young school children saying, I am Malcolm X, I am Malcolm X. And it's honestly such a beautiful way to end this film. Like I can't think of a better way to end it. Um, But that's the movie Malcolm X. It's really difficult to describe because it's three and a half hours. So it's like you can't break down every single moment. We will break down a lot of moments here. Um, But that's like the movie in a nutshell, a biopic of Malcolm X's life and the trials, tribulations and showing all the facets of him. Um, And it's it's I think, Ricky, you said it best in a text that you sent me. If you don't mind, I'm going to read it. We were chatting about this movie via text earlier, and um, what you had written to me was, I think Spike did such a good job of representing a portrait of someone who was beautiful, complicated, and imperfect. Ah, I love it. I think that's why you fall in love with him. You can't help it. It's like the speech in the end, where he's like, people that didn't care for Malcolm X, it's like, did he ever smile at you? Did you ever speak with him? The way he made people feel, I don't know. I I think it's really interesting watching it from our perspective today, because I think growing up, I feel like I didn't know a lot about Malcolm X. Like when we were learning about civil rights in school, uh, I feel like we talked about Martin Luther King. I feel like we talked about Rosa Parks. I feel like we didn't really talk about Malcolm X. Um, I think they might've showed us a clip of this in high school, 
but not a whole lot. Um, and I think it's such a shame. And I think it's probably because I feel like this movie really doesn't paint white people in a great light. And um, you really understand why Malcolm X feels the way that he feels. And I think especially from today's perspective, people are willing to have this conversation more and be maybe a little more uncomfortable than they were in 1992, which is also likely why this movie did not win all of the Academy Awards that it should have won. So Rookie, please tell us what you love about this movie. Is it your favorite movie perchance? Wonderful question for you to ask. It is my favorite movie. It is my number one movie of all time. And Denzel Washington's performance in this is my favorite cinematic performance of all time. I was reading up just as a refresher on Denzel Washington's preparation for this role because it, it had been a few years since I watched the movie, like all the way through. Um, and I watched this interview. It was like a joint interview. I think it was like an ET behind the scenes thing. And they interviewed Spike Lee and Denzel Washington and Angela Bassett and Aussie Davis, who does the um, voiceover at the end. Spike was talking about Denzel's preparation for this role. And Denzel did a production of a play where he played Malcolm X, like I think maybe 12 years before the movie was even shot. And he was like, yeah, you know, I did this play and I immediately obviously got like hooked on this person's life. And then when he got this role, he was reading everything he could about Malcolm X, reading all of his speeches, read any, reading any book about him. But the most beautiful thing that I that I read from those interviews and that Spike repeated was that in the preparation for this role, Denzel felt that he had to be spiritually pure and he gave up pork. He, I'm sure he he read a lot of stuff, but there was something that I saw online about him either like studying or attending something involving the fruits of Islam. And I think that preparation is in such stark contrast to the disgusting things that you hear about very privileged method actors using their roles to abuse people. It was just, it's its such a beautiful contrast to that. Him saying, no, 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 to prepare this for this role, I'm not going to scream and yell at people or um, use this as a carte blanche to behave in whatever way that I like. He was like, no, no, I'm going to be spiritually pure because, and I don't know if he said this or Spike said this or if it was implied, it was the spiritual purity would make it possible for Malcolm X's spirit to move through him. The first time I saw this movie was on a giant screen. I think it was the second movie I saw after COVID was lifted in 2021 where we could like go to the movies again. I saw it, I saw a print of it, like a gorgeous print in a movie theater, it was on the big screen and it was sensational. I was like blown away by it. But I remembered um, before I saw it, you had told me um, how like there was a part where Denzel Washington was just like improvising. And it was as though the spirit of Malcolm X was flowing through him. The words that were coming out of his mouth were what would have come out of Malcolm X's mouth. It was just like making a speech up on the fly. That was exactly what Malcolm X would have said. And I bet you what you're just describing sounds like he was able to channel that because of the way he was connected to Malcolm X through his preparation. Yeah. Um, I think Spike Lee was saying, he was like, there are some scenes, especially because we got, he they got to use um, 
several of his speeches and he's like, we couldn't use every single one, but we use, you know, here and there. And there were times when we would just keep the camera rolling and you'd be like, Denzel, keep going, keep going, keep talking. And there would be times where, you know, Denzel would just keep talking and say all these things. And then they would be like, cut. And then he'd be like, I don't know what I just said. That was a Lawrence Olivia quote once. I remember him saying like, that's how I knew I gave a good performance when I was on stage, where if I left the stage afterwards, if I couldn't remember because I had somehow transcended myself and become the character on the stage, that's how I knew it was a good performance. So it sounds like Denzel did that. So I rewatched it in three parts. I wanted to be like, okay, I want to be fully present for each because it's, you know, it's over three hours long. Though it doesn't feel like it. May I say people at home? It does not. Do not let that dissuade you from watching it. Because I remember the first time I watched it and I saw that runtime, I was like, oh. And then I actually, the very first time I watched it, I had started watching it pretty late at night and I made myself go to bed because I was, I was just like, I don't want to, I want to keep watching. Um, so I think you're talking about Laurence Olivier and mm. how it's like, that's how I knew I gave a good performance. Um, I was describing this rewatch to my friend last night. I was leaving her a voice note and like, my voice, I, I had to be like, I swear I'm not sick. I've just been crying because this is so beautiful. Like it's, it's so gorgeous. And I was like, it's, I think it's also just so thrilling to watch one of the greatest actors who, to ever do it, Denzel Washington, achieve that state of acting nirvana in front of you. Something that was so striking to me this time was his innocence in the beginning. We see like early in the film, something, so we talked about how this is a masterpiece. Part of what makes it a masterpiece, it's like the script, the performances, the cinematography, the direction. And what I was really noticing this time is the beginning of this film starts off sun dappled, right? It's like colorful and gorgeous and sunny. And his face, Denzel's face in the beginning is so young and innocent and happy. And you feel that as an audience member when he's playing that jokey game with Shorty where he's Humphrey Bogart and Shorty's the bad guy and he's shooting him down. Like- the sense of play, the sense of joy, that gorgeous dance scene that we also need to get into later. Um, you see all of this joy and then you watch him become who he's meant to be, but then become stone by the end. Or not stone, but like this shot, the double dolly shot, the very famous double dolly shot in this film where he is still and the camera, the world is moving behind him. He looks like he's floating and his face, his eyes are vacant and he looks haunted and like he is just gone. Like... He knows he's about to die and the world is bleak, right? Throughout the film, the colors get bleaker and grayer until the end, it's a gray sky and he is just dead. So it's like, oh my God, to watch that journey and to watch him go from young, hopeful, joyful to that is astonishing. And to do that as Malcolm X, like if you look at real footage of Malcolm X, he looks and feels like Malcolm X. I would yeah. say much like Tina Turner and Angela Bassett, yeah, and Angela, Bassett. Angela Bassett put on the Tina Turner like persona character. You really felt like she was Tina Turner. And I really felt like he was Malcolm X. You really felt like he was Malcolm X. Malcolm X. And that double dolly shot, um, which we talk about pure cinema at its finest. I'm you all can't see it on the Zoom because you're just gonna <laughs> hear it, but I'm doing that look like cinema hands. Um, it's, it's just genius. I watched a little clip of Spike Lee talking about his double dolly shot. And he was like, I didn't invent the shot. He was like, that is a misconception. I believe it is something. Um, I will look up the name of the black filmmaker who originated it. It, it, it was something that it's an homage to that filmmaker. Um, 
but he was talking this to this man about um what that shot means and the significance of that shot and i believe he said something along the lines of you know he'd spoken with um malcolm x's widow betty shabazz and malcolm had a feeling he was going to be assassinated and i believe he had a feeling he was going to be assassinated that day and so the double dolly shot is him walking towards his death but also uh accepting that he's going to be a martyr and he says he has that closure moment um with his guard where he's like first of all there's that sweet woman who stops him and she's like you keep doing what you're doing keep doing it <laughs> and you're like oh but then he he you're right he he makes a comment about you know being a martyr or what is the comment he makes about martyrdom before he sends his guard away to go like make a call when he knows he'll be unprotected um there's a quote about martyrdom and so you're right you get the sense that he he somehow he knows that this is his time and this is the day and it's like when he's on that double dolly shot you as the audience feel like a sickness too because it's like so disorienting that shot and it's scored with Sam Cooke's A Change is Gonna Come. Mm. The music in this, by the way. What great details. There is a song for every moment that matches the moment. Some examples. I mean, they're singing Shotgun the in the gym, in the place where he's going to die the night before he dies. I had forgotten that that was the song that was used. Because I think when they play that song, the people in the movie who are presented as the people who are going to shoot him are kind of casing the joint. Mm -hmm. And it's like this big, is it like a school dance or something that's there? It looked like the local YMCA is having their dance there or something. It was like like, shotgun. And then there's like a really wild uh shot with the camera where it's panning between the ballroom and then Malcolm who's in a hotel who is is trying to get away and do some work and the phone keeps ringing because he him and his wife are constantly being harassed by racists and getting death threats and also by people in this nation uh nation of Islam and um the camera zooms in on Denzel's face and then does like a full circle where you're going upside down. And I'm cut. Now I'm re- like, as I'm saying that, it's like, like the barrel of a shotgun. <gasps> oh, I didn't realize that. That's yeah. a really good. To me, it just felt like this is where it's all ending. Like the world's upside down now, but I love that. I think your interpretation is probably closer to the truth. Obviously, the one I don't love, and I do want to talk about this character, Laura, because I'm not really sure what the character of Laura is or is for. Um, but there's a part where there's a tragic character named Laura in this movie, where it's Malcolm X was dating her when he was kind of going by the name Red. <laughs> and he was young and he was dancing with her to dance and she won't sleep with him. Um, she's like more of a proper kind of lady back then. And he wants to sleep with a white woman who's like propositioned him. And so the idea is kind of like he breaks her heart. He goes off with this white woman, but then later on she reenters his life, but she's become it like attracted to men who have a lot of issues. So like her partner that she chooses has a drug problem and eventually she turns to sex work. You're never totally sure what she represents or what she's there for. But one of the songs that they line up is they mention like you're down on your knees and then she gets down on her knees to you know give a white man a blowjob and it makes you feel really sick inside and really sad that that's her fate you know that that was a character that didn't quite work for me either um 
when I saw her more and more destitute, I was just like, but why? <laughs> you know, like, you yeah, know, she, why? she started out like so lovely and so full of life and so sweet. And I was like, I, I, I was a little confused by that. Like, oh, okay. So because she doesn't end up with Malcolm and Malcolm is out of her life way before he becomes Malcolm X. Yeah. Um, I'm like, so then her life veers into this state. I'm with you. It never is totally resolved for me why that happens. And the only thing I can think of is that maybe it's like, this is one of the paths that you could go down. Like you don't have a lot of resources potentially if you're stuck in a certain situation, but it didn't, I don't know. It didn't seem like that in the beginning. Like she seemed like she had her head on her shoulders and she had a really nice grandma. And she's like, I don't know. I just didn't see that trajectory for her. Very intelligent girl. Yes. Very beautiful. I feel like, you know, Laura, Laura could do well for herself. Mm-hmm. Laura, Laura seems very put together and I have a lot more faith in her. That is one of the points of the film is like it shows in the beginning all of the ways that Malcolm is pushed down and oppressed by the white people in his life. So like the people that take him away from his mother. So what they could do is give her money to take care of her kids, but they don't. They take her kids away from her. Um, The foster lady comes in. She's a white woman. She has no compassion. She takes the kids away. Um, His teacher literally says to him, you will never be a lawyer because you are black. You need to work with your hands. Like it's very, very much white people are constantly pushing him down, holding him down. All of these people are pushing Malcolm X down, but that those same forces would also be pushing Laura down potentially too. I don't want to forget saying this. And so maybe we'll get to it, but I don't want to forget saying this. The opener of the movie. I don't know how it was like when you when you played it. So I streamed it on HBO Max. I'm still calling it HBO Max. I'm not calling it Max. Uh, <laughs> I streamed it on HBO Max for this second rewatch. So when I played it, big WB logo very first words you hear are it's it's like in praise of Allah the most merciful the most compassionate it's like an opening to a Muslim prayer like a ritual thing and then you you see you know all the names directed by Spike Lee uh starring Denzel Washington and then you hear like do you do you want to hear Malcolm do you want to hear Malcolm and then you hear like you know and it is this blistering justifiably blistering speech that very straight away indicts the white man with being this, the greatest murderer on this earth. And it is interspersed with footage of Rodney King being beaten by police officers. And then that footage, like you still hear the speech going on. You see this horrific video of this man being brutalized. And then you see the image of a, of, a, uh, of an American flag that starts burning and then it burns into an x that opener i was like spike is not playing with any of you spike and the cinematographer ernest dickerson they are not playing with you and i i appreciated that opening because it was very difficult to watch but it was also something that set the tone for this biopic which is This is not going to be a sanitized version of Malcolm X that makes white people feel good about themselves. There is no white savior in this movie. And if you came to this theater for that, this isn't the movie for you. And it it, it also hits you right away with, you know, 
how his faith, how being a Muslim was so important to him. It was so important to him through, you know, his time finding it in prison and then converting and then preaching. And then even when he left the nation of Islam, like it remained such a, a central part of who he was and a guiding principle. And as I was rewatching it, I was like, this was a really freaking bold thing to do in 1992. Yes. Well, and I think that's what probably held it back from getting all of the prestige that it deserved. Because like, again, we cannot say it enough. This movie is a masterpiece. And so I think it made a lot of older white people feel uncomfortable and bad about themselves. Everything he says in the opening paragraph is correct. You know, like white people have colonized for 400 years. Like, show me the lie. Before I, we move beyond the opening, I also noticed this time that in the center of the flag, the stitching was broken. It was a really small detail, but I went, oh my God, that has to be on purpose. That there's like missed stitching right in the center. And I, I was like, that's such a cool detail. Um, but there's there's a line later in the film in a speech where he's like, they've exchanged, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, they used to wear white sheets and they've exchanged their robes for cop uniforms. Yep. Yep. And that's the opening footage that we see with Rodney King. Like it's a bunch of white cops beating up a black man for no reason other than he is black, period. And so, I don't know, I love that all of that cycles together. But I also feel like what I was noticing this time was the cycle of like racism and lives. So he, how similar to his father he is. Like he, his father was a preacher who was proud of who he was and who had knowledge of his African descent and the people that he came from, like the tribes that he came from. I, I have a book over here, no. The Awakening of Malcolm X, people uh -huh. at home. <laughs> I did not get to finish it before this podcast <laughs> and it's making me sad. I That was my goal and I didn't do it. Um, it's Malcolm X's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz, co-wrote a book with um, this woman, Tiffany D. Jackson, who's a really great YA author. They basically like wrote about Malcolm X's time in prison, how he got there um, and how he kind of found himself through like being Muslim. And it's a really cool book. <laughs> I recommend it. Um, so far, again, haven't finished, but I think I know where it's going. But uh, in the book, they talk about how he grew up knowing where his mother and father's family were from. He knew where he came from. Um, and in the movie, that's showcased through his father. But in real life, a lot of the credit goes to his mother. His mother, so smart. There's another book ah, called The Three Mothers. Uh, it's written by this woman, Anna Malika Tubbs. Um, and it's it's about the mothers of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. and James Baldwin and how those men get credit for all of their ideas. And they should get credit for all of their ideas, but their their mothers really, really shaped them. So all of this to go back to say that I felt like there was a cyclical aspect to this where his father was a strong black man who knew his worth, who was a preacher who was murdered by white people. Malcolm X is a strong black like Muslim preacher or Muslim minister he empowers black people. He is also murdered this time, not necessarily by white people, but by the hate of like people seeking power. Um, yeah. So I was just like noticing this, the cyclical qualities of those lives and the film especially shows it when they show um, Malcolm's house being set aflame when he's a child and his father getting all the children out of the house and set a fire by the Ku Klux Klan. And then later on, 
Um, his house is set on fire as an adult and he's running out with his children. And this time it was set by the, the people who are working under Elijah Muhammad. So I don't know. I just couldn't help but notice all of those commonalities this time around. And I also, again, wanted to give credit to his mother, Louise Little. Yes. Good for you for giving the credit. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up James Baldwin because right before this call, I was looking over some like trivia about the movie and um, James Baldwin worked on a draft of the script. I was so shocked to see, well, one, I would have loved to have read that script. Two, yeah. they were like, James Baldwin is writing the script and Norman Jewison was set to direct. And I was like, wait, <laughs> like what? Fiddler on the Roof? I love him very much. <laughs> But I just don't see that fit here. I don't think that's a good choice. The the thing that struck me when you were talking about the cycles and um, how uh, Malcolm X's father was a proud black man. And the thing that was so beautiful about his father in this movie and then also about Malcolm X in this movie is that both of them knew that they were more like they were like, I am proud to be who I am. And I am proud of where I come from. The white people who have done this, who have created this racist system should be ashamed. We didn't do anything wrong. Um, that sense of purpose. I think that's what we see with his father and with him um, and with some of the people he inspires. And something I actually was realizing, I know that in real life, it's not depicted in this movie, but his father knew that he was going to die the night that he died. His mother said, please don't go out tonight. I think this is going to happen. And he was like, no, I'm I'm going out. I'm not going to not live my life out of fear. And then he, he he knew and he, so it's very similar to Malcolm X, it sounds like. Um, yeah. But it was something that really also struck me, this particular viewing, is how refreshing it must have felt for an audience to go to the theater, a Black audience, to go to the theater and see a movie that is calling out so much white bullshit like uh, just the fact that this movie is being like isn't it absolutely insane that this dictionary is made by a white person and all the words pertaining to white are like pure harmonious fair and then like perfection and then under all of the the black words it was all terrible things um so i think what a powerful idea to introduce to one white people who might be watching who don't know and two black people who can just absorb that and just be like thank you for saying this and just the fact that this movie keeps constantly showing doing this thing because you are trying to assimilate with white culture and you do not have to do that you are perfect and beautiful as you are you do not have to conform to white culture um i felt re refreshed hearing that so i can imagine how it would feel to a black audience seeing and hearing that as well like just how how good that must have felt and i mean just also just the creative team obviously the star stars denzel angela bassett and then directed by spike lee but um uh terrence blanchard who's longtime collaborator of spike lee to the music ruthie carter did the costumes ernest dickerson did the cinematography um only out of those people that i just mentioned Denzel Washington was rightfully nominated for an Academy Award he did not win, which is my villain origin story. That's embarrassing that he didn't win. It's I embarrassing. I love you, Al Pacino, but it's embarrassing. That's literally one of my topics. So please, can we talk, do this really quick? Yes. The Academy Award snubs of this film, because <sighs> I was looking at what won. 
Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood Western <laughs> beat wow. this movie for Best Picture. Oh, Malcolm X wasn't even nominated in Best Picture. Like, shocking. I think last time we had spoken on the podcast, we I don't remember if we if this made the final editor, if it was just like us talking off camera or not. But I feel like you said something like, I just assumed that this won because it's so great. Like, I assume Spike Lee won for Best Director and Denzel won for Best Actor. You got this and this and this. Oh, yeah. the only two Academy Awards this was nominated for were Best Actor and best costume costuming and it lost both ruthie carter actually had to wait until 2019 to win her first academy award and it was for her gorgeous work on black panther and the very first words out of her mouth after you know she's holding the award she says spike lee thank you for giving me my start that was the same night that spike lee won his very first oscar for best adapted screenplay for black klansman that was also the very first year that Mr. Spike Lee was nominated for Best Director and he lost Best Director. It's like so surprising. Like, I just, yeah. I am surprised by that. Like, you're saying it and I'm still surprised by it's it. It's wild because this movie is literally in the Library of Congress. It's just like the fact that like, to me, Delroy Lindo, his performance in this is gorgeous. It's West Indian Archie. Oh. West Indian Archie, he, his journey, when he's playing like, he, at the end we see him you know, in fading health, he has had a stroke. He is not doing well. His degeneration is beautiful. And what an interesting character. And so he, Gene Hackman won that year for Unforgiven. Um, and Gene Hackman already had an Oscar. Why couldn't Delroy Lindo have won for this gorgeous performance? Like, I just can't, I don't understand how this is the best and it didn't win. But I also do because I wrote a paper about this in grad school and the Academy was like 90% white in 2012, which means that in 1992, it was even worse. So I'm about to make you angrier. Oh no. Delroy Lindo has never been nominated for an Oscar. I don't understand how that's possible. He's a, a gorgeous actor, like the compassion. So his character in this film, you logically know that he is a dangerous man. Yeah. But his compassion and kindness, it reminds me of um of Moonlight, quite frankly. Mm. Uh, that's those are the vibes that I kind of get from his performance in this. And I just think he's so good. There is like <laughs> a tenderness to this character that he plays, where it's like, yes, you know he's a dangerous man, but he's also very loyal. And he will he will take people under his wing. Just don't cross him. And he's fair. And he will only cross you if you're not fair to him. Yes. And it's about the reputation, that line that devastates at the end where he's like, I just cared so much about my reputation. It was all about my reputation. And you're like, oh, it's crushing. This movie, this movie. <laughs> I just keep saying it. I have to give so many props to um, the DP, Ernest Dickerson, who is iconic, um, who has also never been nominated for an Oscar, uh, despite, in my humble opinion, shooting some of the most gorgeous footage of all time in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm i thinking about all of those scenes where um, Malcolm X is delivering these uh, rousing speeches. And there's one where he's, he's speaking outside and there is a pan on the crowd and then it zooms in on his face. And then you get like, his POV looking out into the audience. Um, the, the scene that I watched, I know that this wasn't his Oscar clip because I actually saw what his Oscar uh, clip was. I believe his Oscar clip was the outside crowd scene where he has that big speech about, you know, before mm -hmm. we were this or that, we were black. That, you know, he has 
beautiful yeah. speech. Um, but my the scene that I personally was like, this would have been my just 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 engrave his name on it. Just engrave his name and give it to him. Uh, well, actually, there are two scenes. One of the scenes was the speech he uh, gave um, where there was all those people on stage, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and there were women in the audience on this side and men in the audience on that side. And he is talking about race in this country and what the guy that he has chosen to follow, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, sees as a solution to that. And it's like a three minute speech and he's just firing on all cylinders. And it really feels like, you know, that he's he's giving you a sermon. He's ministering to you. And then there's these beautiful shots of the crowd just getting inspired by him. And I don't know, feeling the love and the message. And I know I keep saying it, but it's it's just... It's so beautifully choreographed. It's so precise. And the color palette is gorgeous. I mean, I was looking at stills because, you know, Malcolm is giving this speech and then there's all these members of the Nation of Islam sitting behind him, standing next to him, some guards. And then there's women in the audience in these like very distinct, they have like these white um long dresses on and then like a hijab and then the men and they all have suits and they're all cheering Malcolm 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 that was like my first one was like is this your Oscar clip the second one was when he goes to pray in Mecca and he has that whole prayer that he says in the mosque I I was looking up some things about it and other Muslims were like this man nailed that every every part of it just the ritual and the precision. It was shot so gorgeously. Like even just really like small moments, like when um when he's in solitary confinement and the light shines through just for a moment, the way it hits the camera is just stunning. Like I paused and took a picture because it was art and it was beautiful. And then um something I was noticing a lot this particular viewing too was the emphasis on keeping um Malcolm like showing him through not just the bars of prison, because um, there is that great shot when uh, the camera is on a dolly and it goes from cell to cell to cell. Like it's as though we are we are hopping in all these cells as um, Baines and Malcolm are walking in front of uh, the camera. I just thought it was a really cool shot, but uh, we constantly see Malcolm through shades. So it's like uh, the, sh the blinds look like a prison on him a lot. And I was noticing that until he leaves Elijah Muhammad, either we see him through prison bars or we have that great shot where he like looks up through the exact hole of the prison bar uh, where there's like an eye hole. Uh, there's a great shot of that. But we're seeing him through prison bars. He's clearly like still in prison. But then even when he leaves, when he's working with Elijah Muhammad, we still see him through the blinds and the blinds are like a prison on him. And then when he finally decides to leave, the blinds are on Elijah Muhammad. And I was like, whoa, whoa. we just flipped it. You are literally free now. You are out, you were in prison and then you were free, but kind of in prison again, because you were working with somebody who was working against you, who will harm you in the end. I'm also thinking of the footage, like sometimes, um the camera would go from being in color to black and white, especially if they were uh, recreating a press conference. Mm. So they do a press conference after JFK is assassinated. And Malcolm says all of these things that gets him in trouble with 
Elijah Muhammad. And then later, does is there another black and white shot? Oh, the ch- yeah, the, yeah. Is there is there one after that? Is that when he when he gives another press conference about leaving the nation? Yeah, I think. I think that you're right. I think it's almost anytime he gives like one of those smaller press conferences when people are right around him, it's usually in black and white. And I think that's what helps keep the biopic fresh because it's not like a traditional biopic where it's all told from like one perspective in one way. It shows us lots of vibrant other ways. And that's one of the ways making us look like we're watching grainy black and white footage of him giving a press conference. And so then when we see the real Malcolm X in the end in the black and white footage, it all seems together. It's like it blends perfectly because we had that footage earlier in the film. I believe this is the first film that got permission to shoot in Mecca. They were telling Spike Lee, can't you just do like a stand and shot in Jersey? And Spike Lee was like, no, 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 no. We have to go to Mecca for this. That is the only way this works. And there's also just like some, it almost looks like B-roll footage of just, you know, it almost looks like Denzel, like, you know, smiling at the screen with his guides. But I think it's it's also just you get to see this like playful side of Malcolm X and also this spiritual rebirth where he's yeah. finding his own path in his religion, where he realizes that he can set the terms. And then there's that press conference he gives where he was like, he says the thing about he was like, I, you know, I've taken this trip to Mecca and I prayed with Muslims with light eyes, <laughs> you know, so... I'm more open to working with those people as long as they have the interests of Black people at heart. Because he says his priority is with the Black community as it should be. But after this trip, he realizes that perhaps the separatism doesn't need to exist in order to um, achieve a better world. And I read... I'm always amazed when I can Google something and find an article from like 1960 something. And there was an article from the New York Times. I believe it was, was it 1964? Um, October 4th, 1964. In this article, he talks about how um, he is open to working with other people and other religions. Um but again, there is so much love for his community. And and yeah, the thing that I loved about that that last press conference, he was like, it, it didn't sanitize him. It didn't say, yes, let's all just, you know, work together for all of us. And he was like, I'm willing to work with all of you and I'm willing to rethink my past positions. And I'm willing to say that I am wrong because I have to humble myself. But you can only come to work with me if you understand what my priority is um and the thing that i the thing that i just loved about this movie and and reading about this man is he wasn't afraid to say oh i changed my mind or i was wrong which is the most powerful thing i also there was one discrepancy i was reading something that his widow said um she never remarried by the way I can't even get into how heartbreaking it is that her sweet children had to see all of that happen. Um, but there's that one scene in the film where um, his wife confronts him with all these rumors that she's heard about Elijah Muhammad. And he's like, oh, no, this can't be true. And they kind of get into the shouting match. And she said, we never yelled at each other. We never yelled at each other. I can't remember uh, whether it was one of Malcolm's daughters who posted this recently it was either in the commemoration of his birthday or maybe in the 
you know, a remembrance of the day he was assassinated. But she said that like an FBI agent who had been hired to trail him literally wrote, I can't tell you anything bad about this man. He has an excellent character. You want dirt and I I like literally can't give you dirt. And like, why are they following Malcolm X? Like, why is that why? what they're doing? Don't you have better things to do? Can't you follow like the racist assholes? Oh my God, it's all wrong. Um, I will say though, like, I think especially this viewing in light of the fact that we live in 2023, we have seen so much now. Um, I feel like I completely, I, I am a white person. And like, to be fair, I am a Jewish white person, which is still a white person, but it's also a white person. You, I still sometimes get some hate for being Jewish, right? So the fact that like his anger towards white people is so understandable and so justifiable. And I guess it's like, I don't take it personally because I see like they're making a case for why he feels this way. And despite the fact that he felt that way about white people, that white people are devils based on what he's seen, that's pretty accurate. He still changes his mind. He goes on that journey. And yet white people watching this can't seem to do that. They can't change their minds over this. Like to me, his anger towards white people is beyond justifiable. They explain it over and over again. And I, it makes perfect sense to me. So like, I don't know. I understand that aspect of Malcolm X and, and appreciate beyond measure that towards the end of his life in real life, he was like, no, I, I don't actually think that all white people are devils. And I think that we can work for a common cause, but I do support the black community. And that's my primary focus, like building up the black community. There's a great quote. Um, I don't remember this person's name. There was someone on Jonathan Van Ness's podcast a couple of years ago on getting curious that had the quote, white supremacy eats its young. So I think a lot of times when Malcolm X was in hot water for saying what he was, whatever he was saying to me, what he was saying was this is what white supremacy does. It's harming white people too. And this is how it's harming white people. So I don't know, I, I wasn't maybe as offended as other people were because I think I was listening to what he was saying and it made sense to me. Maybe and it's because we're from this lens today. I don't know. I mean, I think it's partially because of that. And it's also just like anytime you are listening to somebody from a marginalized group as somebody with privilege. I mean, even I'm a woman of color, but I have privileges in some way being a cis straight woman, right? If someone of a different community is like, these cis straight women do this, I don't take that as like a personal attack because I know it's not you personally, Rukmini, are doing this. It's more of like, as a collective, this thing has happened. So as a collective, I got to address you. And even if you haven't done something, you got to get your people together. I I didn't want to forget saying this. So we're talking about the evolution of this character and this human. And one of the very first things you see him getting his hair relaxed. Um, and the very first time he's doing it, he's like so ready. And he's like, I got this. And they're like, are you ready to feel the burn on your scalp? And he was like, I got, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And there's like all, this almost like comical scene where he's just like, like, he's, he's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then he, then he feels it burning and he's like, I, I, oh, you have to put water on it. You have to put water on it. You have to put water on it. And then years later, when he's living this life, um, before he gets arrested, the same character. So Spike Lee is actually in this movie playing a character named Shorty. And he is 
he was also the one there the very first time that that the relaxer was put on he puts it on the scalp again and malcolm is completely calm some completely calm and then like later that also turns into a situation where he's in a very dire place because the water has been turned off and it's burning and then he gets arrested but it's so interesting because there is a very famous malcolm x speech who taught you to hate the texture of your hair who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent you bleach to get like the white man who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet who taught you to hate your own kind who taught you to hate the race that you belong to so much. The thing that I will never forget in that scene that you were describing, the part that's like so devastating is you mentioned he has this burning relaxer. It's burning him. It's hurting him. There's no water. And so he has to stick his head in a toilet to get rid of this, this relaxer that's burning his hair off. And that's when the police come in. And that's when they even like even more belittle him. Like they come in, he has his head in the toilet and it's like, the complete degradation of that moment. Like you you were trying to assimilate with white culture and white culture comes in and thinks that you're like a black person sticking your head in the toilet, putting those things on top of you that are not even true. The, the, you feel how horrible that must've felt in that moment. It's just, to me, it's such like a, there are more devastating moments in this film, obviously. Yeah. But to me, that was a real devastating moment. This is not to say that if you put relaxer in your hair, you're you're wrong. No. But it, it's but it's, the commentary of the movie is like this is this is um a device to show us Malcolm's journey with yes. his identity. Please do whatever you want to do with your body and your yeah, hair. I was like, I just want to be clear. Like me as an Indian woman, I don't get to yeah. I don't get to comment on that or judge that. But you're right. It's what they're saying in the film of like examine why you're doing this. Who are you doing this for? you know, him basically putting relaxer in his hair, not for himself, but to assimilate with white culture in a way that is not authentic to him. So as we were saying, like, you do what you want with your hair and body, like you are loved and beautiful and wonderful. You do you. Um, What I actually was feeling from a lot of that was I know that this is not the same, but as a woman, I feel like we are taught to hate the way we look. Um, and we're, we do painful things to fit in a certain mold. And so it's examining why you do that, basically. Who are yeah. you doing that for? Like, why that. was I getting Brazilian waxes to have no hair? Like, why? That's <laughs> stupid. Like, come on. For me, it might not be stupid for you, but you know? Um. Anyway, so we're going to move on from that. Uh, <laughs> there were some really cool hidden gems in this movie that I was really enjoying. Um. One of the gems is this wonderful dance sequence at the beginning. Uh, it's, it's a gorgeous dance sequence, but what I think is really interesting about it is A League of Their Own came out a year before, and there's a dance number in it with Madonna. And it's just like, Madonna is dancing with a soldier, and I love that dance number, and I love that movie, and I enjoy it a lot. I felt kind of almost like Spike Lee saw that and was like, no, 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 please let me up this 1,000%. So they use the exact same music that they use in A League of Their Own, and then they do this gigantic, like, it's like a whole chorus number almost. It's a whole club of people swing dancing to this song in this really vibrant, gorgeous way. It's just so much fun to watch. Like it's a really great musical number. You could just watch this number and not know that this is like a biopic. You'd be like, oh, what a cool musical. And I believe one of uh, Denzel's intense preparation, um, or what? 
a part of Denzel's intense preparation was like really taking this Lindy Hop dance training very seriously. And that's him. And he's amazing. He's fantastic. Like that, that scene just, and that being so early in the movie, it just sets the tone for this movie just being epic and grand. Yes. You're right. Cause we start with like preparing for where we're going to go. So it's kind of like white people, like if you're watching, this is what this is. This is our tone. This is where we're going. But then it shows like the innocence and the fun and the joy of youth when they're at that that dance early on in the film. And it's so much fun. When they're like walking down the street with their suits on, he's like, swing your arms like this. The shot with the leaves too. Like one, when they have their suits and those zoot suits are incredible. And when they make fun of those suits in New York, I get mad at everybody. Cause I'm like, no, they look fabulous. And this is wonderful. And I love it. Ruth Carter with those costumes, like they're perfect. They're perfect. The red, the bright red of his suit i mean i'm always gonna like shorty's yellow shorty's yellow with his feather at the top i was like this is perfection you know spike lee was like please give me the very best one please and then i love even in the dance number when um spike lee has that shot at the end where he's sliding through people's legs then pulls up to the camera and you get a close-up of him what a great moment i love that he put that in just for himself you know like it's such a great button on this like gorgeous dance number Okay. Anyway, yeah. So all of that. Yes. Love that. Um, another hidden gem that I noticed was we get earlier in the film when he first uh, hooks up with Sophia, who's like the white woman that kind of causes a lot of trouble for him. They're hooking up in his car and they do like a slow zoom in on a license plate. And it's because when he goes to jail, he's responsible for making license plates. And I was just like, oh my God, what a good foreshadowing moment. This is so smart. And there's so much, um, there's so many things that have to do with guns and pretending to be shot. There are so many moments throughout the film where like earlier in the film, I've mentioned several times, like he's playing with Shorty. They're playing basically like Bogart and the cops, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, fake, fake, shoot him up. And then when he's with Delroy Lindo, Delroy Lindo shows him how to hide a gun and they they have another fake shootout. And what I noticed in that one is he's holding the gun at himself. He's holding it the wrong way when he pretends to shoot Delroy Lindo. Then we have another moment with the gun where he's playing Russian roulette with, um, oh, oh. I think, is it Ray? He's playing Russian roulette with him, but he had palmed the bullet. There's one where he's protecting his family. He has that gun in the house. There are just like so many instances of like, oh, here's a gun. I'm not going to get shot. And then like, that is how he is killed in the end. He is assassinated by a gun. So it's just like all these fake out moments, all of these moments highlighting the various moments with guns um they foreshadow so much i also want to shout out one i like when he changes his ideology and converts to being a muslim he all of a sudden starts wearing glasses and that's how you know that he's smart now <laughs> i was like yes costume choice i love it and those crisp suits that he wears i think i texted this to you denzel washington and angela bassett in this movie are like some of the most beautiful people you will see on screen they just look exquisite they look absolutely exquisite the both of them. so the first time i saw this before i saw it you had mentioned a moment to look out for you had told me the moment when they are in the phone booth just like watch the tenderness of that moment and i feel like so in february uh the academy museum did like um they have a regeneration exhibit right now which i highly recommend if you're in the la area go check out the regeneration exhibit but they had a month devoted to black tenderness on film and it was so, it was so beautiful, right? You're seeing all these moments that are just exquisite between black people on film. 
And this falls into that. The way that Angela Bassett and Denzel Washington are with each other. You mentioned like the moment in the phone booth. And when I watch it, it's like this gorgeous, tender, sweet, romantic, real, it feels real moment. And then when they're married and there's a moment where she puts her hand on his cheek, oh, like you ache for how much they love each other. It's it's gorgeous. And the phone booth moment is so wonderful to watch because they're not even inhabiting the same physical space. He's literally making a phone call and he's like, will you marry me? And she right away without thinking is like, yes. And he says, did you hear what I asked you? And she's like, yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. And she calls him dear heart. Dear heart. It's beautiful. I was like, I want to call someone that. I'm I was like, I want, to call, I want somebody to call me dear heart. And when he says, I love you, she says, I love you back. And I'm like, that's the best. That's the best. It's not like, I love you too. None of that. No, it's, I love you back. It's so love you back. intentional. Oh. I love also, I mean, relating to this, Angela Bass's work in this is beautiful. And, and Betty Shabazz in this. I think the thing that I love about this character is that she really challenges him. Like the very first time she meets him, He's like very much about his work. He has very important things to do. He can't be bothered <laughs> with, with any with any distractions. And she has like this very sweet tone. And she was she says something like, "Do you know what this prophet did when he drowned?" And he's like, "What?" She's like, "He ate." Because yeah. she's in charge of was it, it's like women's diet. Like that's the work that she does. That also is, a, it's such a funny moment, but it's also such a moment of care. Like mm-hmm. doing all of these things. Do you ever sit down and eat a meal and sit and just breathe? And then in their phone booth conversation, doesn't she ask him again? She says like, have you eaten? She's checking on him and making sure that he's taking care of himself. When they meet and then later he's like, they spend some time together doing work um, and they're walking and walking and walking. And he's like spouting up all these ideas about the way a woman should be and how she should do this and how she should do that. <laughs> which is and I just love those moments where Benny's like, huh, interesting. Mm-hmm. No, not quite. Yeah. Okay, everybody at home, you should know we're like, we love Angela Bassett. She did the thing. <laughs> Angela Bassett did the thing. So first of all, like she's a different person every time, I think, on camera. Yeah. Um, but she's like a master of quiet strength too. So in this, it's like, this could have been the dutiful wife kind of role, but she brings so much strength and respect to it that you don't really feel that way. You feel like she's always making her own choices. I, I just love what she does with this part. Uh, cause I, yeah, I think it could have maybe gone under the radar if it was somebody else or if it was handled in a different way. She's just so graceful as a performer. Yes. So yeah, I just had to had to throw that in. Thank you for doing that. Oh, and then people at home, one more hidden gem. At the end of the movie, when they are saying, I am Malcolm X, John David Washington, who is Denzel Washington's son, he is one of the students that stands up and says, I am Malcolm X. And he's so cute, little baby face. And then to think like all those years later, he would star in his very own Spike Lee joint, Black Klansman. Black Klansman. And you're like, look at that. I love that <laughs> legacy for you. So sweet. Um, one more just music tie-in. We mentioned some of the other ones, but one of my favorite ones this time is when he goes to Mecca. Underneath the score, they're playing Duke Ellington's version of the Arabian dance from the Nutcracker. 
And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Terrence Blanchard, genius. Terrence Blanchard, you genius. I have to bring in my little bit of Oscar trivia. So the year that Spike Lee finally won his Oscar, the year that Ruth E. Carter finally won her Oscar was the year that Terrence Blanchard finally won his Oscar. When they are constant collaborators, it sounds like they all collaborate really well together. Like they all have such a shorthand with each other. I was reading an interview uh, (laughs) with my fave Adam Driver. uh, And he was just talking about when he worked on Black Klansman, he was like, the really cool thing about being on that set is that so many of the crew have been with Spike since his like very first or second movies. It's a very familial thing. They work together again and again and again. And even though Ruth E. Carter did not win the Oscar for her work with Spike Lee, like I said, I, I just think it was such a powerful moment that like she like she said, thank you. Something we haven't talked about yet are some fabulous cameos. This film has so many great cameos. If you had not texted me, Wendell Pierce, and Giancarlo Esposito, I would have not even recognized them. They are so baby-faced in this. And Wendell and uh, Giancarlo are two of the three people involved, at least in this movie, uh, in the assassination. And Wendell has this line where he was like, get your hand out of my pocket. Like he says it, the first time he says Mm -hmm. it is when um, Malcolm X is is giving a press conference. And he says that and and it kind of fright, it startles Malcolm and the people around him and he runs off and that's also the thing that is said right before like there's all of these disturbances that are made in in this room and then Malcolm X is assassinated but um it was also interesting because like I would say like yeah in the in the movie like their parts are really small but they have like a very like memorable part right I would say especially Giancarlo because he ultimately is like the primary assassin and like there's this very unsettling moment where Malcolm X's daughter drops her doll and she's like and he picks it up for her and he's like here you go my little sister and and it's 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 very chilling but I think the other cameos that are interesting to see it's also interesting to see I always love seeing actors before they really kind of explode and yes I mean Giancarlo and Wendell Pierce hadn't exploded at this time but like, I'm also like thinking about the actors who had like one line. You said Michael Imperioli and I didn't even see him. Yeah. When Malcolm X's house is burned down and he's being interviewed in news footage, it's Michael Imperioli doing it. And it, it's like this, I just imagine he got these sides and it was like reporter, you know? And then there's also um, Richard Schiff is that reporter. He was on the West Wing. He's the man in the press conference after... Malcolm returns from Mecca and is talking about how his views have changed. It's the gun one. Do you still think Black people should have rifles? Yes. Richard Schiff's character is the one who is like, so you still embrace extremism, don't you? And like, that's his only line in the movie. But it's wild. Lincoln, you'll miss it. That part made me mad too, because I think also what this movie does really effectively is it shows people putting words in Malcolm X's mouth. Yes. And him saying, no, you say that. I didn't say that. You just said that. Or you are you are making a logical leap from my words and it makes you uncomfortable, even though what I'm saying isn't that isn't really bad. Or yes. is it is it not the truth? And he does it both. Like both things are so effective. I, like he does make a lot of rational points. Like to me, the gun point was a very rational point. And it was like pointing out hypocrisy of like, do you still think we should arm black people? And he says, well, white people are armed. Like, are they not? To me, that's a very rational response. And yet they turned it around to be extremism. There's an interview with Denzel Washington 
where they asked him about the legacy of Malcolm X. This is back in 1992. Um, and they're like, oh, don't you think that what he says is, um, what he says is is just so radical. I'm looking at this quote because it's too good to misquote. Is the sheep preaching hate when he says that I'm not going to let the wolf eat me anymore? And he he goes on to say, he wasn't preaching hate, he was preaching common sense. That's all he was saying. And I mean, considering the things that he witnessed, yes, there were a lot of things that he said and and he changed his mind on some things and some things that he, he was just like, no, this is the way that I see it. Um, but But again, also like, what a beautiful spirit he had when after like this deeply spiritual journey, it made him realize, oh, okay, maybe my, maybe my views on these people and this religious group aren't how I feel anymore. Yeah. And maybe I can change my mind. Um, the ending voiceover with Ossie Davis um, narrating, I was just weeping. And it's like, you know, he calls him a prince you know, uh, beautiful black prince. And and it's like what you said, it's like for all of the people who misunderstood him or attacked him, did you ever see him smile at you? Did you ever see, I mean, there's all this footage of him, just him being silly and goofy and and then passionate and um, <sighs> just interspersed with so much footage of, of very brutal things and then footage of people who were also assassinated uh, like Martin Luther King Jr. I believe yes. I'm going to ask the line when he is when he is getting ready to make his speech and he's talking to, I think, his guard and he says, call up the reverend. Is that Martin I was King? wondering this, too, and yeah. I don't have an answer. I should have looked it up, but I was wondering that in my head of like, oh, is is Martin Luther King Jr. going to be? Was that, you know? Yeah. Was that I don't know. something that was put... I also, um, this might be something that you have already said. I did read the um, the character in the prison who is the first person to introduce him to Islam was a composite role of a bunch of people. That makes sense. That his actual conversion was, I believe, it came from, I don't know if it was one of his siblings or both of his siblings writing to him about this religion and, and Elijah Muhammad. That tracks because that's such a journey for Baines to go on, to be so in touch with his faith and with himself and to be so in control to go into being like such a jealous spiteful money-grubbing person it's like a really big leap to take yeah. so that would make sense that it's a, a compilation He's of a, a lot of yeah character. and then i don't want to forget we almost missed this cameo christopher Plummer. christopher Plummer is literally my favorite cameo because at first you don't realize it's him and yeah. then he's in that church talking and denzel get like stands up and gives that great speech about like no this is what's actually in the bible i'm pretty sure jesus is not like blonde hair and blue eyed and christopher Plummer's like oh Oh, like, but then you realize it's him and you're like, Captain Von Trapp, it's you. Like, <laughs> I had forgot, you know, I, when he passed recently, I think uh, Spike Lee put up like an in memoriam post and it was a, a still of him from this movie. And I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot. I forgot that was Christopher yeah. Blummer. He's great. Phenomenal. Um, well, and I, I love that, like, you see the white actors in this and you're like, okay, I I have so much respect for you because Spike Lee trusted you with this. Like yeah. you understood what you were doing. Like Peter Boyle plays one of the cops. Yes. And in my brain, he's like young Frankenstein, you know, like he's he's the the monster. I think everybody loves Raymond. But he's he's playing this asshole cop 
um, that has the one of a very good line in the film. One man shouldn't have so much power. And then it cuts to like Elijah Muhammad because he's talking about Malcolm X. But like yeah. they show us Elijah Muhammad. And you're like, whoa, Ooh. There's, uh, what a great filmmaker. Spike Lee. Spike Lee, you deserve best director for this. You know this. We have Al Sharpton and Bobby Seal making their own cameos as well. Um, so I wanted to shout them out. But really, thank you for bringing it back to Christopher Plummer because he's it's such a delightful it's like a, surprise. A, Christopher Plummer here? Like what? This is great. Did we already discuss? I don't. I want to make sure we don't miss this. The changing of his name from Malcolm Little to Malcolm. we haven't. Let's please let's do this because that happens with the Baines character in prison where he says, "Who are you?" He was like, I'm Malcolm Little. And he goes, no, that was a slave name that you were given. Who are you? I love that. That's why the end is I am Malcolm X. I am Malcolm X. It's like we answer that question. He doesn't know it. And by the end, we know it. We all can answer that question. Oh, but I, I love that moment. He's like, so I'm not red. I'm not Malcolm Little. Who am I? Um, I also just want to like make sure we talk about the end as well, because you you started getting us into it. This big ending speech, one, as narrated by Ozzie Davis, two, the speaking Nelson Mandela does. Um, I think one thing that's really powerful about it is he like kind of calls out the white people in general or just people that have been like, you want to erase Malcolm X from history because you don't agree with what he said. But this is why he's important. And there's a line that was Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. In honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. I thought that was just really beautifully expressed. And then the final, the final shot is Malcolm speaking by any means necessary. That's like a Spike Lee thing. One of his tropes. Spike Lee has a whole bunch of tropes, people at home that he puts in his films. Um, One of them is the double dolly shot that we had mentioned earlier. That's in a bunch of his films. Um, He does a lot of singular faces in the crowd. If there's a crowd scene, you will get certain like real close ups of people in the crowd. Um, He always has a character say, wake up in a film. So uh, if you, like I went to the Academy Museum when it opened and they had a Spike Lee exhibit, which was wonderful. And they had spliced together every single one of the wake-ups in his film. So it was just a whole bunch of wake-ups. I bet you can find something like it online, but he always says wake up in his films. And he always says by any means necessary in some way. Oh. Yeah. I was, re- this is, <laughs> I'm looking up who, oh yes, Melvin Van Peebles, the double dolly shot. That is the filmmaker. Thank you for looking that up. Inspired by Lee's hero, Melvin Van Peebles' use of the double dolly shot in his 1967 film, The Story of a Three-Day Pass, Lee and cinematographer Ernest Dickerson first tried using the double dolly shot while filming School Days in 1988. While Lee initially used the dolly shot to show off his own words, he started incorporating it in his narrative structure in later movies to transpose a transportive or alienated feeling. This can be seen in his 1992 biopic, Malcolm X, where we see Malcolm Denzel Washington on his way to his final speech at the Audubon Ballroom. He poetically glides toward his, towards his inevitable tragic ending. Um, and this is a thread, just to give it credit. It is from a Twitter account, Black Renaissance, um, at the B-L-K-R-E-N, the Black Ren. Thank you for reading that and finding that. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful to know. Credit where credit is due. Yeah. Yes. I do want to read the Nelson Mandela, what he says. This is a real Malcolm X quote. We close the film with Nelson Mandela saying this, which is obviously so effective as Nelson Mandela. A lot of the images we see towards the end are of the end of apartheid in South Africa. And um, I mean, they talk in the movie about how Malcolm X, how he wanted 
people to be accountable in the U.S., uh, for their treatment of black people, because, you know, all these countries are saying, oh, what's going on in South Africa is terrible. And yet here in America, no one's saying a word. Um, so we do see like in a kind of a montage, people walking through the streets of Sueto and they, you know, apartheid is over and Nelson Mandela is going to eventually run the country and he was imprisoned. You know, everyone, you don't need to hear me talk about it, you know. Um, but to me, it's like so doubly meaningful at the end when he reads Malcolm's words. He says to a classroom full of children, we declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be given the rights of a human being, to be respected as a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. My cousin and I were talking about how what you said at the beginning of the episode, We I didn't learn about Malcolm X in school. And if, if he was brought up, it was always like, he is bad and this person is good. And it's like, yes, those other people were good, but he was good too. His message just wasn't, wasn't presented in the way that certain people were comfortable with. Um, there's a moment that I think that's really powerful. Um, so we talked about like the tenderness in this film, but there's also like a sharpness and a stillness at certain times. Um, so there's a moment when... Um, uh, one of uh, the Muslim brothers in uh, Malcolm X's group, I don't remember his name. He's beaten by a cop. He's beaten yeah. by somebody and put in jail. And so someone says like, oh, you Muslims are all talk. You never do anything. And so he gets a group of people together and they go to the police and they stand perfectly still. And is it is such a moment of powerful powerful stillness because there's people behind them that are getting upset that are riled up and they're a wall two rows of black men in suits being so still and to me that was just this this beautiful one cinematic moment but to the power in that stillness and of like the solidarity of working together you can change things when you work together was what i got from that like they get their friend out of the jail when yeah. he did not deserve to be in jail because he was the one no. that was beaten they get him care. And not only that, he's taken to a black doctor. And so early in the movie, that teacher's like, you'll never be a lawyer. You'll, you know, black people will never be doctors. And this man is being treated by a black doctor. And I was like, ooh, already, already things are changing. And then there's that iconic shot in that moment where Denzel raises his hand and then he just ever so slightly turns it. And then people start walking in just uh, beautifully symmetrical lines. Yes. And it's powerful and militaristic, but that's also what makes it a little bit like, I'm always suspicious of people working in unison. It's like, it's the the fine line of like, this is a dance. And then yeah. like this power could be abused. And we know Malcolm X isn't going to abuse the power, but yeah. other people are. I also don't want to forget the iconic moment where this is a, a little, I don't know if this is a little bit after, a little bit before, where the white woman goes up to him and is like, Mr. X, I just, I admire your work so much. What can I as a white woman do to help you? And he says, absolutely nothing and walks away. Um, I mean, okay, obviously at the end of the movie, his views have changed. But the thing that I loved about that moment, it was just another reiteration of the fact that this wasn't going to be a white savior movie. In another movie, that girl would have been the the like, the girl who doesn't give up and befriends Malcolm and actually yeah. helps all these people. And I love that Spike made it very clear. That was like, no, that's not what this is. Yeah, this is not this kind of movie. 
And I love that we see her reaction after. Like he goes in the building and the camera stays on her and she's kind of like, oh, oh, oh well, what do I do? <laughs> that's never happened before. And I'm saying that. And yet that's like me too. Like, <laughs> there you go. So, but like, you know, I get it. <laughs> I didn't want to forget um, what is her name. There was another cameo speaking of white women. Uh, it wasn't Debbie Mazar, was it? I forgot she Debbie was Mazar. in this too. Debbie was it her? Yeah. I was like, Debbie oh, Mazar. Debbie Mazar. Hey girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 She plays Shorty's girlfriend. Also, I know in real life, those two women were like absolute pieces of shit. Um, I feel like in the movie, they kind of play it like, you know, our me and Shorty's real crime was sleeping with white women. That's why they put us in jail. Yeah. In the in real life, those two women lied and said that they were uh-huh. coerced by those two men into uh-huh. doing the crimes. And you're like, oh, you're terrible, terrible, terrible people. Terrible. Um, but they didn't like they showed that they were shitty, but they didn't show like how terrible they were. So people at home, yeah. I want you to know that in real life, they were extra, extra terrible. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. Question mark. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, one more moment before we go. In the beginning, we see Malcolm kind of as a sweet person, right? We see his innocence. We see his kind of wanting to get into trouble. He's a porter on the train. We get that really great shot of a white person talking down to him and him having to like put on this black character of a stereotype that he would have had to be to survive. But we like, we see him shoving like a pie in that guy's face and it's very satisfying. Th- that moment where he smears the the cake on that yeah. guy's face is a fantasy sequence. But then we get to the bar. Uh, he gets to New York. He wants to kind of be part of the Harlem scene. He doesn't quite fit in. Someone at the bar starts like talking shit to him and says something about his mom. And he kind of has this explosive moment that we do not see coming because we have not seen this behavior from him before. He breaks a bottle and cuts the guy in the neck. And it's like this explosive violence that is out of nowhere that you don't expect that he has in the sequence of the film where he's kind of trying to to let out his rage a bit, but also try to belong to this underworld, this like gangster world that he pictures, this like Humphrey Bogart life that he sees for himself Uh, um, before he like has a transformation. And I I mean, it's obviously to show how big his transformation is as a human going from like this, this way of thinking to being like a devout Muslim. Um, But it's, it's a, a cool moment, but an explosive moment that you don't expect. It's like a shocking, like, whoa, didn't see that coming moment. When I was rewatching it, like I, you know, when you, it's been a while since you've watched something and like they're, they're bits and pieces that you just completely forget or you misremember. So yeah. I remember that, that confrontational moment. And I, I was like, oh, like, do, does he like yell? Do, does he kind of like punch the guy? I no, he grabs a bottle and full on goes for it. I think a, a part of this Malcolm X quote is in, is in the movie, like, right after like the double dolly shot and that woman talks to him uh the quote is it is a time for martyrs now and if i am to be one it will be for the cause of brotherhood that's the only thing that can save this country but i think he said like it is a time for martyrs now i think that you're right yeah i think that you're right i'm like that was the martyr quote that was the yeah, one that was the where quote. he tells us he's a martyr yes. um another quote that i marked down that i loved was an angela bassett one they're talking on their wedding night and she looks into his eyes and what you expect her to say, I think, is like the trope of so many movies where she's like, I knew I loved you the second I saw you. Like, that's what you think she's going to say. But what she says to him is like, you know, the moment I saw you, I felt sad. <laughs> He's like, wait, what? 
Why? Because she's like, I saw you rubbing your glasses, cleaning them. She says, no one as young as you should be so serious. And she says it with such tenderness. Her hand is on his face and it's like her taking care of him yet again, like her seeing the root of this. No one as young as you should be so serious. I just think that's such a good moment, such a good quote and not what you expect at all. And she says something about, I'm going to make a lot of babies with you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I like that too. (laughs) That's really sweet. (laughs) I knew we were going to talk for a long time about this one. Because it's a really good movie and it's three and a half hours. So you have to like, you know, pay it its due. Due respect. Um, Denzel Washington's physicality from going from Malcolm Little to Malcolm X. I mean, yes. I mean, the... The costuming certainly helped with all those crisp, beautiful suits, but also just his posture completely changed. The way that he moved through space completely changed. And I would say um, kind of tangentially related, I was looking up, like, I'm sure you've seen them on Instagram. There's all these Instagram accounts that are like palettes of this movie, palettes in film. I I don't want to say the actual name of the account because I don't want to like, you know, call anybody out but um I was looking I was trying to see if one of these accounts had stills from Malcolm X and I noticed that like yeah there there were several accounts that did but many of them the stills that they put up it would be like two stills of Denzel Washington and then a still of the clan in the moonlight you know with the big moon oh yeah and I was just like this is the shot that you want to showcase like you could you could show the beautiful shot in the mosque with all of the 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 bulbs of light surrounding him. You could show him next to Angela Bassett on their, you know, after their wedding. You could show you could show him in that epic speech that he makes. But this is the thing that you're uh, you could show them in their zoot suits dancing. Yes, you could show yes. like there's so many things that are visually gorgeous. Even the pyramids, that shot of the pyramids, oh. gorgeous. So beautiful. But yeah, I, I it came yeah. up not in every, not in every, to be fair to the film accounts on Instagram, not all of them, but more than one. And I was like, if you if any of you listen to this, stop putting the freaking clan photo in your little palette recap. I wonder why that was put into this film because it does for one second almost look like it's glorifying them. And like obviously it's not. This is a Spike Lee film. We spend the whole film like, you know, questioning white supremacy but i wonder why he put like a shot that makes that look heroic in this picture like i wonder that oh you know you know it was always really scary to me i was picturing like cowboys riding off to me it looked like like a western and how like the cowboy rides off into the sunset it was very eerie to me but that could also just be my so full disclosure when i was growing up in louisville i was born and raised in louisville kentucky uh, when I was growing up, luckily I never had to see their nasty selves, but there would be clan rallies that would come. Oh. And I have a very distinct memory of uh, like people heard there was going to be a clan rally. And I guess the local newspapers, they weren't covering it in a positive way. They were covering it in a like this is freaking these people are terrible and this is disgusting but it was still allowed to happen and I I have a very distinct memory of getting really scared when I was a little girl and like my I was with my mom and my aunt nowhere near this thing this thing hadn't even happened yet I, I think I had read about it in the newspaper and I remember telling them 
I'm so scared because the clan is coming. Uh-huh. And they had to be, they were like, they were like, you know, they were like, they're so, they're, they're idiots. They're so, they're yes. so stupid. They're so stupid. Don't, we, you're going to be, nothing's going to happen to you. We're going to protect you. But I think uh, every time I see, I see them regardless of how they're lit. I always feel this sense of like, ooh, grime. To be very clear, yes, people at home, I feel absolute yes, absolutely. disgust yeah, like, and terror when I see yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, I, that shot, you're like, why do they even get a fucking shot? Why they, I know, I was just like, why do they get to be backlit by the moon? Fuck these guys. Fuck them. Like, they're literally the worst. They're, they're the worst They're literally the people. worst. But yeah, I guess my, with the, with the mood, I think the moon just being so large behind them, I think, yeah, for me, it was more of like this, because like, I've never seen a moon that big before. Well, in Moonstruck, I have. Oh, Moonstruck, okay. You know <laughs> what? Besides yes. that, Moonstruck. that's it. That's the only that's, movie yeah, I yeah. can think of. Directed by Norman Jewison, who almost directed this. Full oh, circle. But yeah, like the, the, the giant moon, I think to me, it was more of like this, like almost, um, eerie sort of evil like um a bewitching but in a bad way like they're devils like they're devils they're devils doing devils they're white devils there you go yeah yeah, yeah. got it got it you got me thinking it's like the white moon the white robes and we spent they have that whole thing about the language because language is so important in this film yeah Yeah, they're talking about like oh white white is good and it's like no 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 not here it isn't (laughs) this is an example of it not being good not good and then on their wedding, they're both wearing white. And that's, so I don't know. I like that it's like redefining things in certain ways. I, I like the attention to language and I, and I don't like the clan. <laughs> yes. oh, to be clear, I know that thought. Sarah does not like the clan. I want to be very clear. No, I'm Jewish. They would clan literally is, murder me. Horrible to Jewish people and black people and people and of color. All, yeah. all people that are not cis straight white men. White racists like them. So yes. racist. Yeah. Racist, yeah. racist. If we want, we can go into the modern lens portion of this show. Um, I think there are a couple things like obviously don't hold up just because this is a story from another time beyond the obvious racism, which of course racism doesn't hold up. Yeah, of course. And of course, ideas about Malcolm X that people had don't really hold up too. like, you know, the negative ideas of him. But I mean, there is a lot of sexism Mm. in in ideas about like to me, anytime religion focuses on ways people should behave as opposed to kindness i get a little bit uncomfortable inside yeah like put on this trope or this role and be like you know women are like this and men are like this and you know that's always a little bit icky to me yeah but it was like the time it was was the 60s yeah i agree with you and i think like for some of the stuff where i was just like hmm that's a good way to put it it was just a mirror of the time it was transcripts of how you know some of these people spoke I think yeah the Laura character was the one that primarily didn't didn't really hold up for me um and the lack of Malcolm X's mother kind of the disappearance of her and the lack of development of her character because she was such a powerful force in his life but I, it's a three and a half hour movie. So like. it's a three and a half hour movie. I, I'm sure, I'm sure he wanted to add more, but they were like running time. That's not on you, Spike. We love this film. We lo- yeah, we love this film. We all, we think you should have won every word imaginable at the Oscars yeah. for this. Just in general, I mean, not just talking about Malcolm X. I think like sometimes when you are looking into these in many ways, larger than life historical figures, and then you have to remember that there were these larger than life historical figures, but there were also just like human beings. And yeah. so 
I know when I was younger and I still, I still deal with this to this day. There's this part of me where it's like, you want every aspect of your hero to be 100% perfect. And you want everything Mm -hmm. that comes out of their mouth to have been angelic. And it's like, no, no. I mean, heroes are flawed. Um, And like we said at the beginning of this podcast, I mean, he was imperfect and that's what made him beautiful. Um, But yeah, I mean, just like some of the ideals of that were like, um, oh, yes, this is the thing that is polluting you. And if you if you stop doing this, then this will happen. But yeah, like you said, it it was just a mirror of the, the time. Elijah Muhammad taking advantage of his female secretaries and essentially using them kind of as breeders is how it felt to me. It was, that was pretty gross. And like someone in power, again, also people that are like, I talked to God and this is what God said. And you know, all that's a little icky to me, him taking advantage of his secretaries and pretending it's through Allah. Like, yeah. And I mean, that I, I think a part of the thing that I really loved about the movie is that it showed it showed Malcolm, you know, becoming a 110% follower of Elijah Muhammad, would follow him anywhere. I would die for him. He has that whole speech. Yeah. He said, I would die for him. And even when he's hearing whispers of this, he doesn't want to believe it. And then he actually meets with these secretaries and he sees it for himself. And then there's this moment of when he says, yeah, I can't. I can't condone this. I can't, I can't endorse this. That would make me a hypocrite. Well, and then he switches instead of being like, well, the honorable prophet Elijah Muhammad, that's the moment he switches and says Allah. Like that's the second that happens when he's like, oh, I don't have to have Elijah Muhammad in this part of my religious ideology. Whoa. And then he, he talks about forming his own, his own collision. And he was like, and from now on, my thoughts are my own yeah. and it is in alignment with Allah. You know, it's not with this man or that nation. And then I think, um, I don't know. I, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this because I don't know if this was me watching it with my own modern lens and maybe seeing things that weren't meant to, to really be there. But I mean, yes, they show the two white men trailing him in Mecca. They show the FBI agents like listening in on his conversations. Did you notice near the end of the movie when a change is going to come starts playing it's playing like he's in his own car and then his family is in a separate car and he's driving and then you see like you see the men who are going to assassinate him in the movie in their own car but you also see kind of blurred in the background like what looks almost like a police officer or like an agent you're right yeah so i actually need to watch there's a documentary literally called who killed malcolm x uh because I was actually talking to someone uh, I'm close to who we were, she had just, I think, watched the movie as well. And we were discussing it. And I was like, so who, who killed him? And she was saying, she was like, it's kind of, there's not a def- definitive answer. Well, it's like who killed him, but also who could have stopped it too? Because you're yeah, right. You see yeah. the reflection of the police car passing him as he pulls over to park. And so they're there. And then we get to the double dolly shot and it's like, they could have stopped this or been there to help in some way. So the lawsuit filed by his family was in, uh, I believe it was filed like February of this year. Um, Malcolm X's family announces $100 million lawsuit alleging NYPD and other agencies concealed evidence in his murder. Uh, uh, so it mentions the lawyer, Benjamin Crump, 
appeared at a news conference in Manhattan alongside two of Malcolm X's daughters. I do not want to butcher their beautiful names, uh, but he's with his two daughter with, with uh, Malcolm X's two daughters to provide what he called formal notice of a legal complaint to the city of New York, the state of New York, the NYPD, the district attorney's office, and various federal law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and the CIA. Whoa. And it says, the attorney said Malcolm X's family intends to file a wrongful death lawsuit for $100 million, alleging that the entities named had factual evidence and exculpatory evidence they fraudulently concealed from the men who were wrongfully convicted. Wow. In 2021, this is from an article from CBS News, because I always like to cite, um, by Emily May Chakor. That's how you pronounce her name, maybe. Um, In 2021, a state Supreme Court judge officially exonerated two of the three men who had previously been convicted and incarcerated in connection with Malcolm X's murder. It followed a two-year investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office that found uh, these two men were wrongfully convicted. One of them has already died. Had already uh, died. A third man admitted to the shooting, but said neither Aziz nor the other guy. So I mentioned Aziz uh, nor Islam. Those are the two guys that were exonerated. He said neither of them were involved. And this would be, if you're watching the movie, people at home, the Giancarlo Esposito character is the one that admitted to doing the killing. It's one of those, like, there's not a definitive answer, but kind of like with the John F. Kennedy assassination where no one will ever really know exactly what happened. I have one more um, modern lens, which is unfortunately there is like an anti-Jewish quote in this. And I get a lot of people's frustration with certain members of the Jewish community, but Mm -hmm. I always do get scared, especially when it seems to me, especially lately, people are trying to tear apart black people and Jewish people um, from being together. There's like a force at work trying to divide us where it's like a stone's throw away from anti-Semitism and hating a whole group of people when we could work so much better together. When I was watching it again and I, cause I remember watching for the first time and I was like, Ooh. yeah. Um, and that was, that was a moment where later when he's giving that press conference of like how he's changed since visiting Mecca, I was like, maybe we could have a more, it's like literally in the text of the article that I sent where he mentions Christians and Jewish people and and how he's like, oh, no, we can work together and blah, blah, blah. It was like, if there had just been a very specific and I was wrong to say that about Jewish people. Yeah. yeah, So I think that's fair. Before we get to the the feature recommendations, um, I keep going back to the scene because it, it is one of my two favorite scenes in the movie, the, the scene where he's praying at the mosque. I was trying to find a still of that scene because I think it's just so pretty. And there were there were like some practicing Muslims on on Twitter who are like, man, he nailed that prayer. Like this was, it's a very specific prayer. Like Denzel deserved the Oscar alone for just saying it so perfectly and doing all like just like the position like the way you have to position yourself the way that you turn your head the way like it's an art yeah okay we are now in the double feature portion of this show if you liked this movie my number one film to check out next is judas and the black messiah i feel like it is also i feel like the black panther party is a very misunderstood party throughout history um and it's a very solid film to check out with this um, I also wrote down Black Klansman, another Spike Lee film. Um, I wrote down The Color Purple because I feel like it's the female journey of finding your own voice and coming from oppression to like feeling free within yourself. Um, I wrote A Soldier Story. I've never seen the movie, but I saw the play yesterday. 
and Denzel Washington is in it. And Norma Jewison directed it. It's in the eighties. Um, Selma, obviously Martin Luther King Jr.'s story as directed by Ava DuVernay. Um, era down to five bloods, another Spike Lee film, do the right thing. The classic yeah. Spike Lee epic film. He's it's such a good movie. And then Roots, because this book, you know, the book about Malcolm X was written by Alex Haley, who also wrote Roots. Um, so those are probably my film recommendations. So you have such a great list of movies, um, like so extensive. But uh, two that I would also recommend, one I haven't seen, but I've heard is amazing. There is a documentary called MLK FBI, and it's all about... Uh, the FBI surveillance, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and I've heard it's excellent. Um, and then the other one I would recommend uh, that I have seen is uh, Till with Danielle Deadweiler, simply because when I talk about how Denzel channels the spirit and he's just a vessel for the spirit to move through him, I haven't seen a lot of other actors do it, but she did it. Uh, there's a five minute courtroom scene where she's testifying about seeing the body of her beautiful son after it has been brutalized beyond beyond and it's just her talking and the camera stays on her um and it's a five minute continuous scene and full circle she's someone who should have been nominated for an academy award for that performance and was not was not I made us talk for like two hours. I was like, I'm going to keep it an hour. Nope. It's a three hour movie. There's a lot to cover and I'm not mad at it. I just can't express enough people at home how you need to go watch this movie. It's so good. There are way too many cinephiles that I meet who have not seen this movie. And we treat white auteurs with so much care and consideration. We consider their work as necessary to our education as cinephiles, as moviegoers, as um, people who are who work in the industry. I'm an actress. We consider their work so important as and, and we treat it like it needs to be on a syllabus. And if you haven't watched X by this person, if you haven't watched Y by this person, then then, you know, you need to be shamed. If you have not watched Malcolm X, which is the greatest film ever made, and you consider yourself a cinephile, you got to turn in your cinephile card until you watch this film. That is my assignment. And like Sarah said, don't be intimidated by the runtime. It does not feel as long as it is. I know that taste in art is subjective. So maybe if you watch this film, maybe it won't be your greatest film of all time but I will tell you and I will I will stand by this Denzel Washington's performance in this is the greatest cinematic performance of all time Spike Lee even said when there was an AFI Lifetime Achievement Award awarded to Denzel Washington and he had all of his collaborators some of his co-stars some of his directors come and give speeches Spike Lee said I may be biased but his work in Malcolm X is the greatest performance ever on celluloid and he is not wrong. Every aspect of this film is excellent. That's why you should go after all of the things we just said. Just go watch yes. the movie, everybody. Yes, watch go it. watch it. Thank you so much for being here and talking about this movie with me, Rookie. It was really great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, um, and everyone, thank you for a wonderful season of Talk Classic to me. We will be back with you later in the summer. 
and uh, for season eight. Next season will be season eight. And we will see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Rukmini Kedesai. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Spotify for podcasters or anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.